This week, we continue our series we've titled Bad Advice. In this series, we've been looking at different phrases that have entered into the Christian lingo but don't actually belong there. Maybe we've seen them on t-shirts at the Christian bookstore or read them in a self-help book or they came from the lips of a famous TV preacher. But one way or other, they have made their way into popular Christian conversation and the issue with this is that they're just flat out untrue or just simply pieces of bad advice. To this point, we've looked at the phrases, God just wants you to be happy. God won't give you more than you can handle. And when someone passes away, how we say, God gained another angel in heaven. If you'd like to listen to, to one of those again, all the sermons are up online at our website and available as podcasts from Apple Podcasts. I've got to figure out how to get those on other things, but uh, that's the thing. It's, it's on Apple if you want to do that. It's interesting to me how so many of our misunderstandings of Scripture, so much of the bad advice that makes its way through Christian circles has to do with hardship. How we deal with difficult things that happen to us and how we try to reconcile that with our belief and understanding that God is a God of love and, and that he cares about us intimately and deeply. The bad advice that we are looking at this week runs along very similar lines. Some of us may have heard it, some of us may have thought it or said it out loud to ourselves, some of us may have said it to someone else or had it said to us. When hardship hits, when difficulties arise in a person's life, and we know that they've been embracing a, a sinful lifestyle, or for us individually, we know when we've messed up, we know when we've failed, and, and hard things happen, it's tempting to hang our heads and think, God is punishing me. It's tempting to think that the bad things that, that are happening to us are in an outpouring of God's displeasure on us. That he is punishing us. We are experiencing his wrath, maybe only in, in glimpses, but experiencing it nonetheless when we go through hardship after moral failure. Is that what's going on? Are the bad things that happen to us God rebuking us for our moral missteps? Is God punishing us? We don't have to look far to see why we would come to that conclusion. The Old Testament is, is full of stories of how God punished people for their failings. We see it in Korah, the well-known leader who became insolent and raised up 250 men, leaders in the community, highly regarded men, and opposed Moses. What happened to Korah after his attempt at rebellion, his attempt at a coup? The Bible says that the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them, their families, and all their possessions. They went down alive into the grave with everything they owned. The earth closed over them, and they died, and they were gone from the community. That's pretty descriptive. God wasn't having any of Korah's rebellion. And so in response, God had the earth swallow him and all who were with him. We see it in the story of Achan. Joshua and the Israelites had just defeated the first walled fortress in known history, the city of Jericho. They were feeling themselves, right? Like, who could stop them now? But when they went to fight the men of Ai... A much less foreboding fight than the one they had just had with Jericho. They got their tails handed to them. They got whooped and, and they, they couldn't figure it out. Was God trying to make a mockery of them? Why did they lose a fight to this, this rabble? And then God pointed out that the victory at Jericho, he had 
given some very, or after the victory of Jericho, he had given some very specific instruction on what could be plundered from the city and added to the personal stores, the personal wealth of the individuals, and then what was to be in the treasury of the Lord. And someone had broken those rules. Someone had taken what was to be given to God and added it to his own personal wealth. It was found to be a man named Achan, and he confessed to coveting some items meant for the Lord and taking them for himself. This is why God was no longer working in the favor of Israel. And it's interesting and, and something worth exploring maybe in, in, a, in a later sermon, how the sin of one man had an effect on the whole people of Israel. His, his private sin, his, his private rebellion, sin the others didn't even know about, had no clue about, still affected the rest of the people of God. God works against the whole body because of the sin of one. God punished all for the sake of one. Now these are just two stories, but we see many stories in the Old Testament of God punishing his people for their sin. Added to that, sin and consequences is, I mean, that's something we're pretty familiar with, right? We speed, we, we get a ticket, we stop going to the gym and our six-pack turns into a keg, right? Like that's, that's how this goes. We don't brush our teeth, we get cavities. We stop going, yeah, we, we slack off in school, we, we get in danger of failing, we disobey our parents, we suffer the consequences. Maybe it's a lack of screen time, maybe it's being grounded, I, I don't know what it is, but we have a pretty good understanding of actions and consequences because it's drilled into us from a young age. And so it makes sense that, that we take that understanding and we take what we see in the Old Testament and we apply it to God today. It's understandable how we get to the point of believing that God punishes us when we do bad things. But the question I have for us today is, is it true? Are the bad things that happen to us glimpses of God's wrath poured out over us for our missteps and our moral failings? To answer that question, let's turn to the book of Romans. We're going to look at chapter 5, be in verses 6 to 11. Now, Romans is a pretty heavy book. It's written by the Apostle Paul, and it follows directly after the book of Acts in the New Testament. It's, it's a hard book. There are lots of hard truths in the book of Romans, but it also contains some of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, and the passage we look at today is one of those. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I encourage you to follow along with me. There is a Bible in the pew in front of you if you left yours at home, or if you prefer, the words will be on the screens next to me. We read the word of the Lord this morning. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 11. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's sense the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. 
God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. I pray this in your name. Amen. How do we perceive God's wrath? Since God is our Heavenly Father, it's, I think it's natural for us to equate the wrath of God with the wrath of our, our earthly parents or our earthly authorities. As I've talked about a few times in, in various sermons, I was not a very big individual growing up, and so I had a serious case of, of little man syndrome. And a part of little man syndrome is a nasty and brutal temper. And tempers express themselves in, in, in different ways, don't they? Sometimes tempers manifest physically. Holes are put in walls. Bruises are put in flesh. Sometimes tempers manifest verbally. We wield words as, as weapons, striking at those who have stoked our tempers, our, our anger, our wrath, to the point where we have decided not to contain them any longer. And sometimes the words themselves don't feel like they carry the, the proper amount of weight and so the volume rises and rises. As parents, we don't handle every difficulty, every moment of rebellion from our children perfectly, do we? I was watching a comedy special the other day, and the comedian Bill Burr was talking about how his wife was wondering how he could get so angry so fast. And he says, where his wife idles at about a one or a two, he idles at a seven. So it doesn't take him too long to reach ten. Or maybe some of us are like the Hulk in the first Avengers movie when he tells the team that he can flip the switch into being the Hulk on a dime because he's always angry. There's so many broken things about this world that drive our anger, build our wrath until it reaches the boiling point. Maybe, maybe it was a bad day at work. Maybe we got some unfortunate news or a disheartening diagnosis. Maybe our team lost. Maybe we got dumped. Maybe disappoint, we disappointed ourselves in a struggle against temptation. Maybe we were triggered about a past trauma by a commercial on TV. Maybe our kids pushed our buttons for the 80th time. Maybe our spouse rubbed our face in a past failing. Maybe our friends just pushed us too far. And now the temper is flared and the anger pours out in an unbridled river of rage. That rage may be loud. That rage may be quiet. Sometimes I don't know which is worse. At least with loud rage, I have a bit of an idea how far I've pushed someone based off of the, the decibel level. But the quiet rage, how long has that been simmering? How hot is the water under that lid? Do we idle at seven? Maybe you're always angry. Maybe we're like Burr's wife and we idle pretty low. But what happens when the engine gets revved? When we hit 10, are we thinking straight? Are we responding well? Is our wrath a measured response to the stimuli that provoked it? I can't answer that question for you. But I can tell you that for me, when my wrath pours out, it is rarely, if ever, measured. There are times that I'm frustrated at my kids and I spout off some punishment. And there's a, there's a voice in my head that says, do you actually mean that? Like, that's, that's pretty stinking extreme, dude. Like, do you actually intend to follow through on that? There have been times when I've, I've put my hands on my son's shoulder, and, and usually a gentle squeeze is, is all that's needed for them to know that they have pushed the line. But I'm ashamed to admit that sometimes it goes beyond a gentle squeeze. 
And in my shame and my failure, I go to my child and ask their forgiveness for not having the measured response that I'm supposed to have. For letting my anger boil out into a grip on their shoulder. For letting the pain of other areas in my life, the things that keep me idling at seven, the things that have kept me angry for years, the things that have brought me from a two to a ten, I let those things into that grip. And that's to my shame. That's an example of my failure. That's something that I need to repent of and to seek forgiveness for. But this is our typical experience with wrath. It's not measured. It's, it's a jumble of all the things that have gotten to us, all the things that have, that have pushed our buttons, all the things that are difficult about our lives that are expressed in often unhealthy ways towards those that are in relationship with us, be it a, a boss, an employee, a, a coworker, a friend, a spouse, a child, a neighbor, you name it. The examples of wrath that we are familiar with, that we understand, our litmus test for anger is not healthy. And so when we think of God's wrath, particularly God's wrath poured out against us, the punishment that we believe He is leveraging against us, it's understandable that we don't believe we deserve it. Because the majority of our experiences with wrath are involved in areas where we don't think we deserve it to the degree that we are receiving it. But here's the deal. God's anger is not like our anger. Human anger is unpredictable, petty, and disproportionate. God is none of those things. When we talk about the wrath of God, we need to put the other attributes of God into our understanding of His wrath. We know that God is just, so His wrath will never be disproportionate. We know that God is good, so we know that his wrath is a proportionate response to evil. And we know that God is love. <coughs> so he is not excited about visiting his wrath on anyone. God's wrath is the just and measured response of his holiness toward evil. And we may not like it, we may not want to accept it, but the reality is that each of us at our core at our foundation, in our old nature, is evil. We weren't created that way. God didn't create us sinful, but because of the choices man made, because of Adam and Eve in the garden, because of the fall, and, and how the fall infected not only the future generations of mankind with sin, but, but also broke creation, we are fundamentally sinful. Christian, non-Christian, our, our faith doesn't stop us from being broken, immoral people. Paul writes in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 in, in verse 3 that all of us also lived among them, meaning the world, non-believers, at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, like everybody else, like everybody in creation, like all people, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We all deserve God's wrath. None of us is exempt not even my little week-and-a-half-old son, Amos, is innocent. None of us is perfect, and so we are all by nature, at our cores, guilty and deserving of the just wrath of God. We don't get more of God's wrath than we deserve. Instead, we get exactly what we deserve. Or do we? Or do we? Our text this morning, church, friends, 
would argue that we do not. The text begins with some fantastic words about how Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. One of my favorite lines in all of Scripture is found in verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When I was writing about where our anger takes us this week, I was just sitting in my office chair recognizing what a terrible dad I can be at times. What a horrible person I am towards people that I love deeply would, would die for, and yet I can still be such a jerk to them. Maybe you were sitting in your own conviction and, and the enemy comes to us and, and whispers that God doesn't want people that can't keep it all together in his family. The enemy tells us that we obviously can't be good enough for what God's plans for us are. We aren't talented enough. We, we don't have the self-control. Our, our past is riddled with our failures and each of those failures speaks against our witness. How could God love ones who have messed up as many times as we have? How could God use any of us in our checkered pasts in his mission and why would he want to? Church, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait for us to get all our crap together. He'd still be waiting. <laughs> no, his love for us is so great that we didn't earn a single drop of Christ's blood spilt on our behalf. God sent his perfect son to us not once we were deserving, but because we were undeserving. And so Jesus came and he lived a perfect life where we stumble and fall all over our sin. Jesus never lost his balance. Sin never tripped him up. He was perfect, untainted, and we hated him for it. We hated that he pointed a spotlight on our failings and so we condemned him to death. We, we put him on a tree, nails through his hands and feet and upon his brow a crown of thorns to mock the king he claimed to be. And there on the cross, Jesus drank from God's cup of wrath. Earlier that night, he had cried in the garden, asking that the cup be, be taken from him. But he finished his prayer with, not my will, but yours be done. God did not take his cup of wrath from Jesus. And so it was upon Jesus that God's wrath was poured out. Our text this morning in, in verse 9 says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Saved from God's wrath through him. We are the ones that are deserving of God's wrath. And yet the hope for sinners is that between us, between you and me, and the wrath of God stands the cross of Christ. For because of Christ's work on that cross, we are justified before God reconciled to him. The wrongs that are in our past were put on Jesus. He took them. The Bible tells us that he became them on the cross. Jesus died for all the sin on that cursed tree, and through faith in Christ, we are justified. The wrongs of our lives have been made right. The sin has been atoned for. The debt has been paid. For we are saved from the wrath of God by the death of Christ, who took God's wrath upon himself. The hard things to hap that happen to us, it's not God punishing us. God punished Jesus for our failings and flaws. The hard things that happen to us are the result of the, of, of the world that our sin broke. 
And God absolutely uses those things to train us, to to shape us, to mold us, to disciple us, that, that we might be more disciplined in our walk with God and in the mission that he has called us to. But God is not overreacting against us and lashing out at us in his anger. No, he is with us. He guides us. He loves us. He protects us. And in his great love for us, he poured out his wrath upon his son. Now, that does not mean that God is okay with the evil in the world. It does not mean that he sits passively by. God is still just. He still works against the injustice of our sin. Romans chapter 1.18 tells us that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Notice how it doesn't say against people, but against the wickedness of people. God still works against injustice. He isn't sitting back and and letting all of that slide. His wrath is still being revealed against the sinfulness of man. It's just not manifesting as the punishment of man. And one day, one gloriously terrible day, the wrath of the Son will be revealed. In Isaiah 63, we read of the Lord's day of vengeance. We read about the terrible destruction of the ungodly, the unbeliever. Isaiah 63.3 reads, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the people no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Friends, our God is just. And Jesus took the sin of the world upon himself, was punished, drank of the cup of wrath, accepted God's anger for the sin of the world. So what of those who have not accepted his sacrifice, his gift? We may think that Isaiah 63 is referencing God the Father, but if we we take a look at Revelation 19, we get a different picture. For here we read of a rider on a white horse. His eyes are of fire. Upon his head are, are many jewels. He is clothed in a robe, dipped, covered in blood. Before him are arrayed the the vast armies of heaven. His mouth is a sword that he uses to cut down nations. And then we get an interesting line in verse 15 where we read, He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. The rider is Jesus. No longer do we need fear the wrath of God the Father, for it was poured out on Jesus. Now, now. We fear the wrath of God the Son. And His wrath will fall upon all who do not believe in Him, do not confess that He is who He says He is, that He did what He said He did and will do what He says He will do. All we need do to avoid the wrath of Christ is believe. Trust in the one that left the perfection of heaven for you, willingly drank from the cup of God's wrath for you, suffered and died for you, defeated sin and death for you, that through faith you might be reconciled to God. Not because of how awesome you are, not because of how good you've been, not because of the brownie points you've stored up, because of all the Bible verses you've memorized or how often you've attended church. This, this isn't about us. It's not about how good we are. It's all about Jesus and about how good He is. It's about believing in Him. It's about recognizing that we are flawed and messed up people. It's about repenting because of that recognition. It's about confessing. It's about receiving the benefits of the forgiveness that has been given to us. It's about faith. 
It's not about punishment. It's about Jesus. May we rest in that. And as we rest in that, may we be compelled to tell our neighbor about God's love for them. May we be compelled to love our neighbor well. May we be compelled to share with them the story of Jesus, the one who took God's wrath for us. What a fantastic, wonderful, gracious, merciful, and just God we serve. Amen.